Two and a Half Admins, episode 138. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary Clara plug that is going to work this time, hopefully, is managing disk arrays on FreeBSD and TrueNAS. Yep, uh, this article on how to manage disk arrays, including blinking the LEDs for a faulted drive and just being able to map the locations of the physical drives back to the device names, which can change between boots and so on. It's a lot of good advice on just how to deal with anything that's more than a couple of drives connected directly to the motherboard. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. Google Drive quietly introduced, then pulled, a file creation limit for all users. And this was 5 million files, even if you're a paying customer. Yeah, it makes you wonder what somebody was doing that made them have to deal with this. Yeah, one of the things that really bothered me about that kerfuffle is it was a flat 5 million file limit per account, including business accounts with 30 terabytes of space. Assuming that the back of this beer-soaked napkin served me correctly, I'm coming up with 6.1 megabyte average file size in order not to exhaust that limit in 30 terabytes, which seems a little unreasonable. Yeah, unless you're backing up large image files or something, then yeah, you're really going to run afoul of that well short of 30 terabytes. Neither my home directory nor my root file system would adhere to that. I mean, you know, average file sizes for either one. I actually did check when this news was a little fresher, and uh, I, I want to say they both came out to uh, under 200 kilobyte average file size. Now, obviously, if you put my bulk data storage into that, you know, that that average size would rocket upwards. But it seems pretty crazy to just out of the blue tell people that the average file size you have in your home directory or your root file system, well, no, we're not going to support that in our super whamadine put whatever you want to in it cloud file system. It just very much feels like somebody really did not think that one through. It was just like, oh, you know, 5 million sounds like a lot of files. So that's what we'll make the limit. And it just, it doesn't seem like much more thought probably went into it than that. Alan, are you busily calculating your average file sizes? <laughs> no, I was thinking about it, though. I was like, yeah, my, that pool is like 50 terabytes. And, you know, there are a lot of really small files on there because I have source code, like 100 different copies of the FreeBSD Git checkout for working trees and so on, and probably even more of the ZFS and so on. Lots of small files, but then lots and lots of multi-gigabyte files. And so the average probably works out well big enough. But 5 million seems like an odd specific I'm guessing almost for marketing reasons, they didn't pick 4 million, like 32 bits as the, the maximum number of files, just because that would sound like a technical limitation and they wouldn't want to give that impression. So they picked 5 million. I think you're giving them way too much credit, Alan. I think 5 million sounds like a human anus shaped number. Yeah. And it was just my weird OCD brain that would have wanted to, to be a power of two. <laughs> but like, I think that 5 million limit maybe made sense on the, the two terabyte limit that, that a bunch of people have, but with the larger sizes, it definitely seems like it doesn't make sense to scale. And I think the other thing that really scared a bunch of people with it was the way that it worked if you were over the limit. So ours had an interview and they talked to somebody that had 7 million files. And basically, they weren't able to save anything until they were went around and deleted 2 million files. And so basically, one day their Google Drive just stopped being writable. I think if I needed to delete 2 million files out of my G Drive, like I'd probably need to write some scripting for that. Yes. And especially if you're on a not a very high paid tier, I'm guessing there's some rate limits to how many API calls you can make. And it might actually take you a significant amount of time to delete 2 million objects. Oh, 
But the fact that nobody could do any work, no, nothing could be saved for that whole time, it seems like if you're going to introduce a limit, how about like a soft engagement time where it's like a big warning every time you try to create a new file saying, hey, you're over your limit in two weeks from now, that's not going to be possible or something rather than just, no, now, no warning, you can't create files anymore. Yeah, I know this is a drum that we keep banging on this show, but it's almost like there's downsides to keeping your data on somebody else's computer. (laughs) Well, and also that if anybody ever tells you you have unlimited anything, they're lying. But that's the whole point of this, that they said that it wasn't unlimited. They were hard limits. You get a, a few gigabytes, I think 15 gigabytes for free, and then you pay in tiers and get more storage for the more money that you pay. And therefore, there shouldn't be limits on the number of files. Well, it turns out that no matter how (laughs) small your files are, they actually take more space than that. Yeah, as far as the limitations go, most file systems have a limitation, a, a pretty hard and fast limitation to how many files you can actually save to them. Because at the creation time of the file system, all of the inodes, which are the metadata blocks that store, you know, the names of the files and where to find the sectors of them and, you know, when they were accessed, all that good stuff. There are a fixed number that are created at the time the file system is created, and there very often isn't a way to actually increase the inode count later. And uh, this time, I'm going to play Alan and bring ZFS up out of the blue and say that's one of the advantages that ZFS enjoys, because ZFS is one of the few file systems I'm aware of that uses D nodes, not inodes. They're dynamically allocated as required. Yeah, and so the limit to the number of objects that can exist in a ZFS file system is 18 billion billion, but that's per file system. And ZFS, each data set is a separate file system. So you can create 18 billion billion file systems, each containing 18 billion billion files, whereas other file systems you can't. Which, much like 640 kilobytes, ought to be enough for anybody. Well, (laughs) still at this point, enough hard drives to actually store that much data wouldn't require enough power to boil all the water and all the oceans on the planet at once. Again, it's not just the power of our current hard drive technology. It's literally to flip that many zeros to that many ones at all. (laughs) Physics says it requires enough energy to boil the oceans. Yeah, you've uh, bragged about this one before. So it suggests that Google is not using ZFS on the back end then. Not that we really suspected they were, but uh, no, we're, we're going to guess that they definitely aren't. <laughs> and it's probably not even a file system in a traditional sense, but the metadata servers where they have to keep the data about, all right, this file's over here on this server or whatever, every object that exists is going to take up some space in that. And if the file happens to be really small, the amount of overhead might be more than that file. And they're, because they're not charging you for that overhead, because it's opaque to you, then they had to have a limit. Otherwise, people could just DDoS Google by creating lots and lots of one-byte files in their Google Drive. Yeah, for any of you out there who are familiar with uh, administering databases, you can think of it a lot like there's a big difference between a 100-gigabyte MySQL database that's populated with, let's just say, 50-meg binary blobs and one where the largest column in the database is only, say, 4K wide. Uh, You're going to have way more rows in the second version of that, quote, 100 gig database. And it's going to be the difference between a database that just acts like, you know, any MySQL database you've ever used versus a MySQL database that requires like a couple of hours to cold start after a reboot. Yeah, we're just thinking of the same example. 
how big the index is going to be. It's like, sure, you have 100 gigs of data in your database, but if you've indexed too many different columns, you now have 200 gigabytes of indexes that you have to update every time somebody changes a column. So they have walked this back then after quite the backlash, but that begs the question, for how long have they walked this back? And what's the limit going to be when they bring some sort of limit back? Likely for lower tier people, the same or even lower limit. I'm guessing they'll just apply limits to the tiers and that they will roll it out slightly more gradually because locking people out of their Google Drive when they have 7 million objects was not a very nice thing to do. Yeah, I mean, they could have just put in the limit as per terabyte of data stored. It would have been so freaking easy, but that's not what they did. And my bigger concern is not even so much, you know, what will they do about this particular issue in the future, but... This kind of draconian, heavy-handed, out of nowhere, here's this rule, and, you know, then it breaks a ton of people's stuff, surprise, surprise, and, you know, then eventually they walk it back after they've broken everybody's crap for a week or two. I don't like what that says about how their policies are created and imposed on their customers in general. So it's if for me, it's not so much about this one particular thing. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to want to use Google Drive to store an incredible number of teeny tiny files anyway. So in one sense, it doesn't really affect me. But I have an Android phone. I'm dependent on Google Calendars. One way or another, I'm dependent on Gmail, even though I don't actually use it for my domain. It just everything is so interconnected. Yeah, it just it, it gives me concerns for how the company is going to behave in the future about any number of potential technical and policy-based issues. Well, and like this one seems like anytime somebody's going to roll out a change like this, the first thing they do is like, well, let's do the quick analysis and see what percentage of our customers are actually going to be hit by this limit. And if it's more than like 0.1%, then maybe you need to give a lot more heads up about it. If it's that small, maybe you should reach out to those particular customers who are probably customers you care about because they're doing something out of the ordinary and you'd like to find out more about why or what it is they're doing than just, okay, we're throwing this limit in with no notice and wrecking people's day. And no concern over paid users versus free users either. Yeah. You can always get away with more shenanigans on people who aren't paying you money. But when somebody is forking over cold, hard cash to have 30 terabytes of storage with you a month, and you then just wreck that out of the blue with a brand new policy you didn't tell anybody about, you just implemented it, and that was that. Ooh, no, that, that doesn't fly. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. 
SMR drives probably don't last as long as non-SMR drives. This is according to a fairly small study by Secure Data Recovery. What a bloody shock. Well, they also said that just all newer drives maybe aren't as reliable. Although I think part of that is their data is slightly skewed because they're only looking at hard drives they got sent that were having a problem. And then they were looking of those 2007 damaged or defective hard drives, what was the the cause in most of those cases and and trying to learn from that, which is very valuable data, I think. But it just stands to reason that an SMR drive that just necessarily has to do a lot more work is going to wear out more quickly. Yeah, I would agree with that. And especially if you're using the SMR drive as a normal hard drive, as opposed to in the role SMR drives are meant for. If you're just backing up data to it in big globs and never touching it, then it's probably not that much work on the drive. But if you're treating it like a normal hard drive and reading write all the time and it has to do its read, modify, write in like 256 meg chunks and lift and shift all over the place, then yeah, you're definitely going to be putting a lot more stress on that drive. And they said of the SMR drives that they had, most of them died before they had 15,000 hours of power on time. So that's not that all SMR drives are going to die by then, but all the ones that they have that did die were on the part of the bathtub curve we normally trust, right? It's been on for a couple thousand hours and it's not and immediately failed, but it's not making it the number of years we would expect. It would be interesting to analyze the workloads those drives had experienced because I agree with Alan here. It's not a smoking gun exactly, but that particular set of circumstances very much circumstantially adds up to it sounds like these particular drives were being used for a heavier workload that they didn't tolerate very well. But at the same time, when the idea of SMR first came out, it was about stretching the capacity a little bit further to try to get more. And that maybe made sense as a use case. But then the SMR drives we started seeing, especially the ones that got submarined into the the normal hard drive channels, were more about, we can just make these hard drives less expensively now. And No shock to me that cheaply made hard drives die faster. Exactly. And I have to push back a little on Alan's characterization of SMR as being sensitive to save a little money and yada, yada, yada. I mean, yeah, you get a small amount of additional capacity. But whether that small amount of additional capacity is genuinely worth all the problems that SMR brings mm-hmm. to the table that we didn't have before, I, I can't agree. It's like saying, well, yeah, that guy pulled the, you know, both bumpers off of his car. You know, it was so he could get an extra like half a tenth or so in the quarter mile. Okay, yeah, but now he's dead if he runs into anything. That was not a good trade. It just wasn't. If you needed that extra half a tenth in the quarter, better fuel, <laughs> mess with the ignition system, something, but don't rip the bumpers off. Yeah, check the inflation of your tires. Well, in this case, I meant more that we started seeing SMR being used for commodity-sized hard drives instead of the very tippy-top of the capacity. Yeah, your barracudas. Well, if it was the largest barracuda you could buy, it would make sense for SMR. But when they started using SMR for the pedestrian sizes, basically, that's when I think it was about being cheap. I don't know if it was about... We built all this capacity to build SMR drives and nobody is buying SMR drives because anybody doing the biggest hard drives they can get is probably actually sensitive to the performance and the longevity of the drive. Whereas if we have all this hardware that can build these drives and we can sell them in bulk to PC manufacturers, then let's do that instead or something. I don't know exactly what the decision model there was, but it seems like they were doing it for a reason and that reason wasn't the capacity or the performance. So it must have been the cost. 
my legally protected opinion is the decision process was as simple as, fuck them, we can sell them for the same price and make more money this way. Because that's the thing that's always bothered me about it. It would be one thing if SMR drives were, again, in my personal opinion, a disastrously stupid decision that saved some money and those costs got passed down to the poor bastards who had to use them. But that's not the way it went down, isn't it? When the 2-terabyte and 4-terabyte and 8-terabyte SMR drives came out, not only did they not cost less than the CMR drives, they pretty reliably charged a little more for them. Not on the consumer side, though. Yes, on the consumer side. Mostly on the consumer side, they just didn't tell you which one you were getting, and you just got randomly screwed. Right, but if y'all recall, I used to write for this little website called Ars Technica, and I covered this whole debacle when it was fresh, and I looked up an awful lot of WD Red models before and after the shift to SMR when they tried to keep the branding model the same, but the, you know, the internal SKU changed a little bit. And uh, reliably, every time, if you knew which model was which and you went looking for the CMR model, you'd find it for, you know, anywhere from 5 to $20 cheaper than the SMR model. Now, granted, the reasoning for that almost certainly was, well, this is the newer model and we charge more for the newer model than for last year's model. But still, not only were you not getting the savings passed down to you, you were paying extra for the privilege of getting a shitty drive that wouldn't do what you needed it to do. It was also interesting to see the mix they had of, of different drives and manufacturers. Some of this is just, I guess, some people mailed in some really old-ass hard drives because they're talking about some uh, Mac Store branded drives that they got. And I was wondering, it's like, I know Seagate bought up the corpse of Mac Store or whatever, and I think at some point was marketing some external drives under that name. But they also mentioned some of the drives were only 40 gigabytes. So if somebody pulled out an older 40 gig Mac store and sent it into this data recovery company, I I just uh, pity to think what kind of sensitive data they had on there they really wanted back. Does that surprise you, Alan? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. Well, that leads me to my hypothesis here, and it's a pretty wild speculative one. But could it be that the kind of person who buys cheap SMR drives puts it in a machine and then doesn't back it up to the point where they need to send it off to specialists to recover the data on it, is probably the kind of person who just uses their computer every day, turns it off, the next day turns it on. So every day that drive is spinning up and down and up and down and up and down. And that's probably what killed them more quickly than if it was in, say, a NAS that was on all the time, spinning all the time. I can guarantee you if a 40 gig drive, Rust drive, did not die (laughs) until like 2020, it was not getting powered off and on every day. It was in a steady state machine for decades. Yeah, I'd agree with that one. They don't have any stats here about the power cycle count on those disks, but that would definitely be interesting data. And I say that because I, I have had some clients with some truly ancient machines that they just absolutely resisted doing anything with and, you know, claimed, oh, well, you know, it would be okay if it died. We really don't want it to, but it would be okay. But, oh, my God, it would be horrible, but it would be okay. So, you know, they just, they get in that loop and won't do anything about it. The most egregious of them managed to limp all the way to retirement in uh, 2021, I believe. It might have been 2022 with, uh, they had this one Packard Bell machine from, I kid you not, 1991. Not a single lick of maintenance had ever been done to it. And they still used that thing to run this ancient late 1980s MS-DOS mode, like estimation software for, for contractors. 
I kept him like, let me set up a VM for you, you know, something. Finally, I, I just kind of stopped listening and I, I used hours in the bank that I had with him. It was just like, no, I'm, I'm making a VM for this crap and I'm pointing at them at how to use it. Ended up not being a VM. It was actually DOSBox, but either way, I got everything set up and like on their proper server where it was backed up and could be restored in the whole nine. And they still went to the front, mind you, and sat in front of that god-awful beige Packard Bell with the 20 gig hard drive in it. But uh, I was no longer worried about, you know, when they're going to come to me crying because it actually turns out it was super important that they have that silly 1980 software that would only run on MS-DOS and only existed on that antique Packard Bell. I, you know, my brother-in-law worked at a car dealership and I gave them one of my old like 400 megahertz machines because they needed something that would run Windows 95 to run their tire alignment machine and not have to bend 100K on a new one. To the best of my knowledge, the only time that Packard Bell was ever powered off in at least the last 10 or 15 years was the one time that I powered the whole machine off to image the drive. And let me tell you what, <laughs> I had sweat running down my face, both when I put the drive in my machine and it had to spin up with power to image it. Oh, and then again, when I put it back in the Packard Bell and turned the Packard Bell on, I'm like, please, 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 please. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com 25A. Users fume after my cloud network breach locks them out of their data. Yeah, this is a big one. So Western Digital found suspicious activity on their network, and so they shut everything down until they can clean up and bring things back on one at a time. But part of that means that they took out the Western Digital MyCloud, MyCloud Home, MyCloud Home Duo, MyCloud OS 5, SanDisk IBI, and SanDisk iExpand wireless chargers all completely down. And one really wonders why a wireless charger requires interfacing with the cloud in the first place. It just, for me, it really, <laughs> it adds that extra little sous-son to the splash screen you get when you set up one of these devices. And it says, welcome to my cloud. Let's set up your personal cloud. <laughs> it won't take long. Yeah. And users complaining that the NAS is in my house, but I can't get my data out of it because something at Western Digital is down because they turned it off because they got hacked. Uh, they say, currently there are no details available about the unauthorized access to Western Digital or what, quote, certain data was accessed. How can it be that you need to have an external internet connection to their cloud service to access data that is on a device running on your LAN? That just doesn't make sense to me. Why would anyone buy into that? I don't believe that's the way that works. 
the my cloud was actually for cloud backups of your WD, you know, like my book external drive. So you install some software and it all kind of looks like it's on the NAS, but the backups genuinely are in Western Digital's data centers. And from what I can tell, it it doesn't look like people are saying they couldn't get into their local NAS. Well, they definitely have a quote in the article here from a user saying, thank you, Western Digital, for not letting me access my data that I have in my living room. I think some of it is that is, the data probably is accessible, but the way people are used to accessing it is via the MyCloud stuff that lets you get yeah. a weird tunnel into your own stuff so that you know you can access the stuff in your living room from your phone, not in your living room. And because of the way they make it opaque to the user how they're actually reaching that device at their house, if they're trying to do it that way and that service is down, it's not able to mediate the connection that would then just be over their LAN. But because they're using the MyCloud client, they're not able to see it because all they get is a 503 error. And to be fair, you know, if these are like new school folks that like all of their computers are mobile devices, that would be the only way they would have to access that data. So that would pretty neatly explain that without even having to call anybody a boomer. You young folk and your lack of proper computers. Or just understanding of what a file system is. Western Digital is warning that the incident has caused and may continue to cause disruptions to parts of the company's business operations. (laughs) The company also said it is implementing proactive measures and is working to restore affected services and infrastructure. The company added that it's uh, retained an unnamed security firm to investigate and is also coordinating with law enforcement. Again, I'm going to mention the fact that I covered the WD Red SMR gate back in the day at ours. And just the tone of this communication from that company is giving me flashbacks. (laughs) That company is so allergic to saying anything that means anything anything in the wake of any kind of incident it they're like it's just it's the exact opposite of what happens when something goes south at reddit and it's not just that they're hard drive manufacturers either i mean they're not the only hard drive manufacturer i corresponded with pretty extensively while i was there and um if you can't get to an engineer at wd and hopefully get at them well away from from management you're just not going to get much of any useful information out of the company's actual PR efforts at all. And it does stand in strong contrast to a lot of other companies, including Seagate, for example. Seagate made it incredibly easy for me to get access to people who would speak, you know, on the record and in great detail about what the company was doing. All the while, you know, WD just wants to throw out platitudes about how they believe that SMR is fine for any purpose, including RAID arrays and ZFS and whatever. It just ugh, left a really bad taste in my mouth. It's going to be a very long time before I forget. Well, at least you got some sort of reply with platitudes in it. That's better than just a poop emoji. <laughs> well, the poop emoji saves everybody time. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> Let's be honest. Everything that WD said that was quoted in that R's write-up, you might as well just replace it with a poop emoji. You would get just as much (laughs) valuable information out of that, and you'd be done with it a lot quicker. Let's do some feedback then. Connor writes, what do you think of Veeam backup and replication? It seems to be the industry standard for anything involving vSphere, but I never hear it being mentioned on 2.5 admins. Is this due to a preference of KVM, and so Veeam never really enters the picture, or something else? Well, Alan and I are both very experienced ZFS types, and we are familiar with ZFS replication, which is both free to use with no paywall and incredibly more efficient than Veeam. 
So it's a pretty hard sell trying to convince one of us, well, you need to pay for Veeam so you can do something sort of like rsync, but a little bit better for large VM images, but not a ton better for large VM images. But admittedly, I have a bunch of ZFS customers who have a ZFS Zvol that they expose through vSphere, and that's where all their VMs live. And then they run Veeam and back up to a second ZFS pool on another machine as their VM backups. So it works really good for VMware. It basically does the ability to synchronize the snapshot in the, the VMware type snapshot and, and get a good backup of a VM. And so it's okay. But like Jim said, if you're not totally in the vSphere mode and, and stuck in their way of doing it, then you can probably do something nicer with ZFS and, and better tools. But you can also just run Veeam on top of ZFS and do it that way. So yeah, it's mostly if we're building something from scratch, we're probably not doing a, a whole vSphere deploy. And so that's why we haven't really, no one's asked about Veeam before. But yes, Veeam on top of ZFS does work. I have at this point lost track of the number of times I have come into a vSphere shop specifically for the purpose of tearing it all down and replacing it with ZFS and KVM. And it doesn't always happen that way. There, there are shops that absolutely are never, you, you can't, you, you're going to have to pry a vSphere out of their, you know, cold, dead hands. And I encounter plenty of those as well. But I have yet to see anybody who's doing something more efficient and less expensive and says, you know, we really want to tear out all this really fast stuff that doesn't bleed us dry in licensing money and replace it with vSphere and Veeam. Yeah. Although some of the customers we're talking about are at scales of hundreds or thousands of VMs and, and to a point where vSphere maybe makes sense, but also where the inefficiency just doesn't bother them. Well, the big place where vSphere genuinely does make sense, I don't think it's even so much scale in terms of like how many VMs you're running. It's more in terms of how many relatively inexpensive and easy to find data center monkeys you're employing who you expect to interact with it. It is easier to find people with vSphere experience and it's easier to train people to use the simplest aspects of vSphere it makes a certain type of admin feel more comfortable because, you know, well, I mean, like on every page of the interface, like if you're looking at a VM, by God, you're going to have a gorgeous like watercolor painting of what a VM ought to be to explain it like on the page with it in the interface. And that makes a certain type of person feel a lot better about a product and they will pay for that. And the bottom line is that you two don't use it that much. And that's why we don't really talk about it. There's a significant aspect of this show that is exposing people to things that they may not have been exposed to before that, you know, we think are best in class and easy to get into. And <laughs> neither Veeam nor VMware need us to shill out their stuff for free. Like everybody's heard of it and it's not better than what we're doing. So why would we bring that up? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point -point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, 
where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send in those questions. The more concise, the better. Ray says, Much has been said about the virtues of using Podman versus Docker for running containers. One of the largest stated benefits of using Podman is that it's designed to run as a standard user without root access, making it more secure. I understand that generally running software as root unnecessarily is a bad idea, but if I'm running a single container on a VPS, what are the security benefits of running it rootless under Podman versus using the Docker daemon? Sure, that process has root access to my system, but if the process is the only thing I care about on the system, does it matter? I want to preface this by saying this is not directly inside either Alan's or my wheelhouses. With that said, for the most part, there's not going to be much difference in this specific situation. If there's only one container on the VPS and all you care about is what's inside that container, well, then the risk of a compromise in the container then breaching the rest of the VPS it doesn't really matter to you. Right, there's nothing else there. Once the container's been breached, it's already game over for you, so whatever. Now, if you were running multiple containers on this system, the advantage here would be that if somebody managed to do a sandbox escape on your container, rather than escaping out into the host system potentially as root because Docker itself is running as root, so if they can manage to get into that, then they can possibly pop a root shell. From Podman, they would just be popping a shell that belonged to whatever the user that's running Podman. And then from there, if they wanted to get root, they're going to have to find and burn a privilege escalation exploit. So yes, there is a difference. I don't think it's an enormous one, but we should throw the call open to some of our listeners who I'm sure work a lot more with Linux containers on a daily basis than Alan or I do. Although with the, my limited experience with Linux containers, the one thing I did do was start an LXD container as a non-root user. Inside with the UID mapping, you could have a fake root user and then we'd run Docker that way. So we had an unprivileged container and inside of it, we were running Docker. But this was specifically for my work to allow a ZFS dataset to be delegated into a container so that Docker would have access to ZFS still and be able to ZFS create the datasets it needed and so on. And for me, when I do work with containers, I'm a lot more likely to be doing just raw LXC, LXD stuff. So again, I don't usually encounter that much either. The few times that I do use Docker for anything, it's actually a similar situation to raise because I spin up a VM for that task that the preferred distribution method is to run it in Docker. And that entire VM just runs that one Docker thing. So it's the same situation as Ray's where, okay, great. You got out of it in your root inside the VM that nothing else is on, but I, that I care about. So there's not really any effective difference. Yeah. You wouldn't have any more access than if you only compromise the container because the container is the only thing on the machine. But you know, having a VM for every task is heavier than having a single container for every task. I like it because it provides you greater isolation. For example, if somebody runs a fork bomb inside a VM, it has almost no impact on the rest of the system, the host system. If you run a fork bomb in a container, well, you ran a fork bomb on the host's kernel and it screws up the entire machine. 
So that makes it worth it to me in my circumstances to just not do a whole bunch of containers inside one system. However, if your workflow is to run lots and lots and lots of containers on the same host and expect them to be isolated from one another, then the Podman approach is certainly worthwhile. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. And do send in your questions, as I said. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. I'm still on Twitter for the moment at jrssnet. And at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.